limiting what's out there about you in some ways is good. You have to decide what's right for you and your family and business because whether you like it or not, your business and family are both connected. You are listening to the Mindful Business Security Show, brought to you by Focivity, where we answer your questions and simplify information security for small businesses. Get the clarity you need to focus on the things that matter. Well, hello. You're listening to the Mindful Business Security Show. I'm your host, Accidental CISO. I know I say this every time, but we really do have another great episode for you today. If you haven't already, make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss the next one. We're going to be talking about open source intelligence, or OSINT, as it's referred to by those in the field. Please share this episode with anyone in your network that you think would benefit from the conversation and answers with our caller's questions. Like many of us in the cybersecurity field, our guest host today is predominantly self-taught. She was motivated to enter the field after a family member was scammed. These days, she's a professional OSINT investigator. Day-to-day, she works with nonprofits and aid organizations to train clinic defenders, journalists, doctors, nurses, and other public figures to protect themselves with better security and privacy practices. Later this year, not counting the novels that she ghostwrites, she'll release two books, one on social engineering and the other on social media privacy. When she isn't helping clients and writing books, she spends time with her horses, learns languages, and enjoys good wine. Who doesn't, right? Though, I assume all not at the same time. Uh, Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Welcome to the show, Shannon Miller. Hello. Hello, hello. Man, it is... It is great to uh, meet you. I know we've chatted on on Twitter and that sort of thing, but I think this is the first time we've ever actually spoken like live. Yes. We exchange angry tweets and uh, comments about all things that are going wrong this week, but yes. Before we dive into the topic today, uh, OSINT, uh, tell me about your horses. So I have two, and um, I have a mare and a gelding, and uh, Devanessa is the mare, and then Magic is the gelding. So we kind of have a joint ownership with Magic, so he's not primarily just mine. Somebody else co-owns him, and then uh, Devanessa is all mine. Um, I've had both of them for about 10 years, I want to say, almost 10 years now. So, and before that I had another horse. And uh, so I've had horses since I was about 25. My parents didn't get me a pony. So I decided as an adult, um, you know, I asked for under the tree every year and they didn't want to give me one. So I decided as an adult, I was going to have, you know, large 1200 pound children. So that's how I ended up with the horses. Do you live somewhere where you can have them there with you or do you have to board them and so I board but I'm I've been very lucky the last few years I I moved them closer to home so they're about five to ten minutes away from me by car so it's really not that bad even if it snows I could still get there it's a couple miles down the road I kind of live at a place where I live in northern Virginia so like there's tons of horse facilities here it's very much um like Virginia itself is like I think a nine billion dollar horse industry in the U.S. between like you know, show jumping and hunters and all. That. I don't do any of that. I used to do eventing, but now I do. Yeah, I used to compete. Not anymore. I'm like, I'm too old for that now. I, it hurts too much. Uh, <laughs> I do it for pleasure, not for pain. Um, and th- they're wonderful. They kind of, um, everyone has their form of therapy in their mind. So my dad had horses when he was young and my aunt, uh, you know, much later, you know, longer in life was was still very active and, and had her horse that I, I mean, I, I, I don't remember how old 
her horse was when it finally passed away, but I, it was probably almost 30 years old because I didn't really remember a time that she didn't have that horse. So, yeah. Yeah. They can live a long time. It's uh, it's a lifestyle choice, kind of like dog people. Like, you know, you, once you have a dog, you always have a dog. Like, even if you don't have the same dog, horse people, dog people, cat people, like we, we're animal lovers, no matter what kind or shape they come in. And so we just appreciate the companions that were given and partners that were given in life. So very cool. All right. So OSINT, this is a really fascinating part of the cybersecurity field. Cybersecurity is, it's a very broad field, you know, cybersecurity is, and like OSINT is just, you know, one of the fascinating pieces. It's all fascinating, but one of the fascinating pieces here, it's a term that our audience of small business owners, small business leaders may not be familiar with though. Can you talk a little bit about what we mean when we say open source intelligence? So I try to explain it like this. Open source intelligence is all the information that you can find that is publicly available most of the time. So like publicly available on the internet via public means, public websites, um, web searches, tools that you use to look over websites, things like that. So for the, the lay person, for the end user that's never done it, think of it like another way of collecting information on people that you're curious about. For example, if... Um, in my business, we deal mostly with harassment and stalking cases. So we deal with online harassment, targeted harassment, um, everything from political figures to private citizens or domestic violence victims. So say they're being targeted by something on the internet. You're trying to figure out who's stalking them, who's harassing them. And the way that you do that is by conducting an, inve an investigation using open source methods, using uh, methods and practices that are available openly on the internet. So instead of thinking it like, intelligence in the traditional sense where you're gathering through foreign sources or domestic sources or human sources open source investigation isn't just human it's also public databases and lists and um, it could be you know back in the day it was phone books you could look people up there but now you find all of those things on the internet so there's all those people look up search engines those are things where you can find you know data aggregation sites where you find information about people that's all part of open source investigation does that help yeah. And so, you know, when I think of security, I think when a lot of people think of security, they think of the defensive side primarily. Mm -hmm. And then you have folks that you might pay to come and run a penetration test. Basically, you pay them to test your security. That's a more offensive. But it sounds like you're part of the field in a way is, is from a defensive perspective, but you're using more offensive techniques for this like reconnaissance and discovering information and research. I mean, yes, um, I would say it's a little bit of both. So I don't do open source on friends and family. I don't do open source on people on Twitter that I'm mutuals with. I don't do it unless I'm paid to do it because I operate under a very strict set of guidelines of ethics, legal standards and best practices for open source research. If you hold any sort of uh, licenses or if you do any sort of private investigation, which I do, which you have to have a license to do in every state. You want to be very, very careful to maintain the ethical framework of what you're doing and how you're doing and how you're conducting your research. So a lot of people just do open source, you know, for funsies. But like in my mind, that's work. And you got to do it ethically because the, 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 the drawback to it is what if you're called as a witness in a court case? What if you are trying to obtain evidence for a client who is working with an attorney and you to gain information? So your best bet is to always understand the legal and ethical implications of what you're doing and why. 
that's why I say it's both offensive and defensive because you're you're looking at it from a perspective. You're also protecting your six. You're watching out for yourself and making sure you're not wading into waters that could get you into trouble. It almost sounds also like very similar in some ways to incident response then that we talked about in the show that just came out recently where, you know, you're trying to investigate and figure out what happened and how somebody did something and and that sort of thing. So there we got parallels there as well. It's a lot of those things. Um, and I, you know, the, the government tends to be a little bit, I'm speaking on government, I'm a former federal government official. So I speak as a former Fed. But um, when we're talking about OSINT for government, they're just now getting to the place where open source investigators who've been doing it in the private sector for years and years, they're just coming up to speed with what we're doing now. They're just starting to hire OSINT investigators, researchers, really investing in open source intelligence. But they have legal restrictions as well because they can't investigate U.S. persons the way someone like me could. So I I don't have to abide by quite the same standards as the government, but I do my best to stay within those boundaries and respect that only certain things can be used, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, everybody that works in cybersecurity, like has this unique path. There's, and we talk about this in the very first episode of the show, actually, that there's no just one path that people come into cyber by. And that's, you know, when small business owners are looking to hire folks, that's one of the challenges that they have is like understanding what kind of background that person should have, because we as cyber professionals have such very backgrounds, typically. Um, what has your journey been like then as you you know began exploring this field and then decided to turn your attention to it full time um so it it was nice and twisty i in college i studied um european studies french minor and spanish i got a masters in public policy so my trajectory was always headed towards government work and public policy and international relations at least that's where i thought i would end up and one of the few people i know who actually used the degree that i went to school for but I used my French, I used my public policy, which is great. But, um, you know, government, it doesn't pay great. And they tend to, you have the boom and bust cycle of government where they hire a bunch of people and then they lay, they can lay you off. They can't. And unfortunately, like there's, there's some security in it, but not as much as there used to be. And there's not as much, I, I didn't, I didn't leave for the money. That wasn't my point, but you know, I made choices about where I wanted to go in my career. So I ended up going to the private sector after being, um, I worked in the foreign service for a few years. I was a diplomat overseas and all of that. But um, so that's kind of like how I went into my main career. I was doing contracting, defense contracting, and then I ended up Department of State. And then I ended up going private sector, working for Hewlett Packard for a few years as a research analyst. And then I came into OSINT when one of my family members got involved in one of those romance scams overseas. And um, we ended up doing OSINT to track down the person and yeah, that's a whole other story. But yes, that's kind of how I got here. That's my circuitous route. But yes. So, you know, we put together a whole OSIN file. This is my first OSIN investigation. I was like trying to figure out who this person is because they were giving a fake name and fake phone numbers. They had my family member convinced that they were real and that there was a whole team of them scamming my family member. And it's so difficult too on the internet with the anonymity that it provides. And like you can make things up and you can... Uh, you know, post fake misinformation to help support. And it, it's, it's really difficult to determine what is real and what is not. So what's real and what's not. And, you know, people put together fake accounts to do OSINT like I do, you know, our sock puppet accounts where they um, they've created multiple personalities, literally multiple personalities on the Internet. You know, we've been at this a long time, but for for even somebody new catfishing, we all know what that is. We all know what phishing scams are like. 
they're getting more sophisticated. They're getting better. And they're 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 becoming even harder to detect with, you know, deep fakes and AI now. And you're you're de- you're dealing with a lot more headwinds than we are used to. And um, trying to keep up is challenging. I bet. So your two books that are coming out this year, uh, one on social social engineering and one on social media privacy. Uh, it sounds like an incredible amount of work to write two books and have them both release in one year. It, it is. And I have had a six month setback on one and uh, printing delays on the other one. So like one I'm working with, um, I was asked by Wiley to um, Wiley Press to submit a book proposal. So that's kind of what we're working through right now with the social media privacy one. So this is just an expansion of a book I've already written, which was an ebook form. And I pulled off the web so that I could refine it and expand it into more of a textbook. So what it's going to be looking at is kind of helping um, families, teens, and college students kind of manage their online privacy a little bit better, their digital footprint, understanding the implications of being online. Because like most Gen Zers are, they grew up with the internet. They grew up with being online all the time, but not understanding how it's all connected. And, you know, they're very tech savvy, but they don't seem to care about privacy. And now we need to impart on them why it matters. You know, a lot of them grew up with their parents posting them online without option to say no. So it's like it's understanding how we're going to protect them from all of the scary things out there, including cases of sextortion, you know, CSAM. I've had more cases of that in the last five years than I've had ever before. It's getting worse, not better. So I know I know that's not a great thing to lead with. But uh, so, so the point of the social media privacy, this expansion for Wiley would be um, to really give better tools to parents and teens to help manage their online presence and to also help manage it if something happens to you. Because, you know, we've had COVID, we've had a pandemic, and now we're dealing with issues of what do we do with our digital estate? Because it's part of our record of who we were and part of our legacy. What do we do with it if we pass? What what happens if a parent dies unexpectedly or your child, for God forbid, or something happens to you? And, you know, a parent, what do you, how do you manage all those data records? How do you manage all of the, the digital assets? These are all part of who we are. So this is really kind of addressing all of those points since it's a lot to cover, but it's, it's going to probably be like 500 pages. So it's big. I'm hoping we can cut it down a little bit. <laughs> but they, they, they're like, we can always cut. That was my point. I was like, you can always cut stuff, just type and write. So that's that one. And then the social engineering, um, I have very mixed feelings about doing a book on social engineering because I feel like let's define what it is. Let's not cause harm, but let's pe- make people aware of what it can do, the power of it, but also the trade-offs of it, if you will. Sure. Yeah, we haven't done an episode on it. And, you know, again, our audience may not know that term. So, yeah, we should. The, the way that I define or think about social engineering is kind of like hacking humans or getting humans to do things that they maybe don't know they're doing. Um, it's a form of, you could, some scammers use it to fish people on the phone. Sometimes they use it in like SIM swapping cases where they'll get your number ported to a new phone. They'll pretend to be you. They'll get enough information about your identity, like your name and your phone number and your family members and your dog's first name. And they'll know enough about you to call your phone company and transfer your number over to them. And then they have access to all your accounts because if you have your account secured by SMS message or text message to verify your identity, they now have your phone number and access to all your accounts via your phone. So social engineering in and of itself is just a it's just a way it's a form of manipulation. I, I don't know any other nice way to put it, but it's also understanding the good it can do 
and it's understanding the bad it can do. So I think for writing a book about social engineering, you have to talk about manipulation, you have to talk about neuro-linguistic programming, and you have to talk about how we apply it. Okay. Wow. Man, that's uh, a lot of ground to cover in those two books. I read really slow. Are you going to do like a children's book version of all of this for me? I am. I've been asked more than once to do like a, a teen, like specifically for teens or tweens, like that age that's using the internet and, ro- you know, Roblox and gaming apps and all of that. Like parents are begging for it. I'm like, okay, so where can I fit that in between book one and book two? Maybe I can pull like five chapters out of one book and put it into a, like a like a shorter manual version that people can just download. My kids are going to need this. They're they're young, you know, nine and 11. And they're just coming into that age where this stuff is going to start becoming incredibly important. It's overwhelming. It's absolutely over. It's overwhelming for adults. I cannot even imagine what it's like for kids. You know, you're, you were born with a phone in one hand and an iPad in the other. So it's like you've got your tablet, you've got a laptop, you've got devices at school, you've got, you know, your friend groups, you've got your messenger apps. I can't even keep up. And half the time I feel like, you know, very old now because everybody's like, have you heard of this app? I'm like, no, (laughs) that doesn't sound familiar. No, please tell me about it. (laughs) I'm not cool anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I I used to know things. So my dad is famous for saying like, there's suddenly been an alarming increase in the number of things I know nothing about. I no idea where that actually originated from, but like, that's something I remember my dad saying as I was younger and I never quite understood it. And like now, like it's very real very difficult to keep up uh, when this stuff moves that fast. So to like everything in those books and stuff, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of pages that you have to write, like if there was one thing that you wanted to make sure that every small business owner or leader understood about OSINT, what would that one thing be? I think OSINT, like anything else, can be abused. It can be used for good or it can be used for bad. And I think understanding the risks and the rewards of it is really important before you venture into a career or decide that it's what you want to do. Because once you know certain things, um, you can't unknow them and you can't unsee them. So at some point in your OSINT journey, if you decide to be a practitioner or a researcher, you will encounter things that will horrify you. You will encounter things that surprise you. You will encounter things that you didn't think people did. So if... If you're approaching it from a framework of being ethical and I don't want to say morally centered, but like everyone has their kind of own moral compass. Like I I try to operate from a place of of trust and authenticity with my clients and with people that I work with. And that's not always the case. So I try to impart that on other people doing the work. But again, everyone has their own journey. And so like the piece that I would impart to people is like, you know, be careful about the choices you make if this is what you actually want to do. And, you know, maybe it's not for everyone because like it becomes people start asking you to like, oh, can you like Google this person? No, no, I can't. I don't want I would rather be surprised. I would rather be surprised by somebody telling me their story than me finding it on the Internet. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely does. And, you know, your your comment about, uh, you know, that you you see things when you're doing these investigations that you can't unsee. I think kind of the flip side about that, too again, you know, for small business owners from their perspective, like you put things out there and once they're there, you can't pull them back. Like, I know that there's, you know, right to be forgotten laws and things in some places, but like the reality of that is like, once that's out there, 
you can't pull it back. So same way you can't unsee something. It's like you can't unpublish something once it's been out there and seen and downloaded and copied. You've lost control of that information. Risk and reward to everything. Yes. So Shannon, it's been uh, good talking about OSINT and and kind of laying the the foundation for our listeners of what OSINT is. Uh, I've got some callers here on the line that have some questions for us. Are you uh, ready to go to the phones? Take some calls? Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Do the cybersecurity risks to your business have you confused? Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast and sign up to be a caller on a future episode. So our first caller here today is Mike from San Diego. Hey, Mike, uh, welcome to the show. How can we help you? Well, uh, the big buzzword these days, chat GPT. Everyone's heard about it. Uh, it's all over the place. AI, um, it, it's overwhelming. My question is, how is how do you perceive chat GPT and AI in general uh, changing data availability for uh, small businesses and, and the, the OSINT data that's out there and the, the processing? Um. That's a very loaded question, and I think it will only time will tell how how we how we handle this. Um, I think, like anything in tech, uh, we like to move fast and break things, and we didn't think about the long term ramifications of regulation for something like AI. I think there's a lot of power in it. I think there's a lot of uh, good things that could come from it, but in terms of OSINT, I think it's already muddying the waters with data. And because I've been testing and researching, I've been downloading like white papers all day, reading about AI and how it's going to affect the OSINT landscape and research and uh, authenticity of small businesses and their data, right? So we're looking at it from the perspective of there's a bunch of people making, excuse me, crappy chat GPT articles and putting them on the internet from their small business. And it's all saying the same thing. So right now we're in the, we're in the dawn of AI really. Um, it being, you know, so commonplace that everyone kind of is talking about it. It's the latest, like you said, buzzword. So um, we have tools, some tools available. There's, um, you know, back in my college days, you know, we had plagiarized detectors like plagiarism. You would submit your paper to the like plagiarism detector looking for common words. Now we have a similar thing that some uh, institutions have built like MIT and has partnered with um, Harvard and another researcher from um, IBM Watson to create um, an AI detector. So it's like you input some words from your article to see if it's human made or if it's you know made by like a chat AI. So these are somewhat helpful. Now it doesn't catch everything. Um, it catches some things, but like they're, they're only as good as the data on which they're built. So if you and if you've worked in any type of IT, you know that data is biased and so the AI is biased. So you, you don't necessarily have um, enough knowledge and bandwidth to understand what we're against yet, if that makes sense. So for small business purposes, um, I would say verify anything that you are creating or anything that you are having done for your company using AI, like verify that it's not being the same article hasn't been sold to multiple companies created with an AI. Um, because I know there's people, there's, there's writers out there submitting 
articles written by chat GPT. And I'm like, okay, but it's not great. It's, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, that's really interesting. Cause I had thought about the risks of AI for making it easier to go do reconnaissance against a small business, but I hadn't considered the risk of small businesses being charged for social media content and other things that is not original, not what they're expecting, being written by AI, being sold multiple times to other people. Generated by AI, yep, and being sold to multiple companies. So like you're getting scammed. That a totally different risk vector than I had even considered. <laughs> wow. I guess a, a larger concern that uh, I've seen is um, open source counterintelligence. Um, you see all sorts of information being put out there. And like you said, it's it, this AI generated. What do we need to be concerned about as far as competitors putting misinformation about our business Okay, so so there's 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 disinformation and there's misinformation. So there's there's slightly different things, but um, in terms of misinformation, that's intentionally malicious, not true information, right? In most forms, disinformation is the information that has a grain of truth in it. So if we pull a thread, there is a line of truth in what we said. Everything else is extra. So when we do disinformation, it's like it's true enough that it could be real. So that's the stuff we're worried about. We're, we are worried about misinformation, but sometimes we want that. You know, if if it's if it's good information, then yay. But um, what you're looking at is like detection through OSINT means of chat GPT style AI is still pretty easy. If you look at some of the um, depending on what's entered when they go to create the piece about like whatever article or whatever they're writing or whatever they're researching or whatever they're asking the chat AI, there's certain limitations based on how the, the AI is set up. If there is a policy in place that says, I can't do that, I'm AI, right? So there, somebody was thinking with like with chat GPT, there's certain limitations on what the AI tool will do, but that's only until it gets more capable and a smarter model. So in terms of misinformation, that's going to be up to... OSINT to kind of develop terms of how we deal with that and how we find it. But right now you can find error messages in the chat GPT code. Enough of them, there's certain key phrases that you can look for that will show up in like fake reviews, in scam reviews of a business, for example. Like let's say somebody's trying to create a Yelp review for their business and they have five-star reviews and the restaurant is great and everyone loves it and the sushi's so fresh. Yeah. Meanwhile, the sushi smells is old and no one wants to eat it. There are certain lines in those fake reviews that people pay for that like you can find certain keywords in the chat GPT code. I, and I refer to chat GPT because it's the most common one that people are using right now to do these fake reviews on Amazon products and Yelp reviews and like healthcare reviews even. So for like hospitals, there's even hospitals using them now. So looking for certain keywords that like would generate repeated reviews that are very similar, but just different enough to seem original. You're looking for pattern language. And unless you're schooled in looking for patterns, which most OSINT investigators are, we learn to recognize pattern language. We learn to recognize how people speak because everyone speaks with a certain cadence, flavor, language, um, not even even accents when you type. Like certain people have certain personality traits. Like when everyone knows if, if I'm tweeting, they know exactly what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it because I have a certain personality type. But 
people creating fake reviews have the same thing. So when you get like those follow farms and those, you know, fake review farms, they're all the same thing. But that's not going to be forever. That's just right now. So does that help a little bit? Yes. Yes, that does. And I think, you know, small business being careful what information they do put out about themselves is is going to, I mean, it's it's a huge rabbit hole. And, and the, the truth is there's not a whole lot you can do about what other people do on the internet and the scale and speed that things like AI allow them to operate at. Like, I mean, you can set up, you know, Google alerts for your business's name and, you know, your name and these things to, to get notified when stuff pops up and Google indexes something new about you or about your business. But then like, but it, but then you have to do something about it if it's, if it's untrue or, or something damaging that you need to have taken down. And we have, you know, some states now have privacy laws that you may be able to put like a data subject request into a company to say, hey, this information's about me, but it's incorrect and you need to take this down. And you may be able to work through some of those channels, but a business operating in a business name, that's not a person. You know, you may have the same kind of protections. That's where you're going to probably end up hiring a brand management, though. Like you'd probably want reputation and brand management. So like you would be dealing, it's basically a PR disaster. So what you're looking for is a PR company. You're looking for a firm that's dealt with this, that that has lawyers on staff to help with DMCA takedown requests, because it is violation of your rights. If somebody is speaking poorly of you, basically your goal is to bury the Google results or get them deleted. Of course, the concern with that as a small business, we don't have the budgets that large enterprises, large corporations have. And yeah. And incident response is very expensive, whether you're getting hacked or, I mean, this is kind of like getting hacked. This is incident response still, but it's external to your system and you've you got to have a plan and know how you're going to respond to that. So I think that's something that a lot of small businesses don't think about is their IR plans need to have this brand management component to it, like reputational repair and all that. And if you're using frameworks like you know, NIST CSF or SOC 2, like those frameworks have some of these components built in that, that, you know, you do have some plans in place for those. Uh, but without them, you're reinventing all of these processes on the fly at the worst possible time. So I think, you know, small business, one of the things that they really ought, ought to do other than setting up those alerts is like have a plan in place and at least know who you're going to call when those alerts fire and it's something that's bad and that you need to get ahead of so that you can do that quickly. Awesome. Well, thanks, Mike. This has been good talking with you. Good questions. I appreciate it. Uh, good, good discussion. Right. Well, I appreciate you having me. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Our next caller on the line here is Mark from Denver. Mark, how are you doing today? Thanks for coming on the show. I'm well, thank you. Yeah. How can we help you? So, I am curious for the solopreneurs, the company of one, two, or three, where you are the face of the company or you are the company, a service provider type company, how does one begin to balance any kind of security, privacy, best practices for not having too much out there with the fact that I need to be widely and easily findable? Oh, such a loaded question. Um, they're never just like one yes answer. Um, so for for someone like myself who is also a, you know, 
quote unquote solopreneur. I run a shop with a small admin team and a few contractors. So um, we are the face of our business. And it's this very fine balance between how much do I put out publicly available about myself and um, how far are people willing to go to find me. Now, in my case, I deal with stalking and harassment. So that's a little bit different. But it's also the same because it's um, existing online is dangerous for certain people, women, minorities, all of us um, to a certain degree. Because people, um, I don't know if you know this, but some people are crazy. And uh, you've probably had at least one client or customer where you knew before you took them on as a client or customer that you were like, I don't know if this is the right client for me and then you after you got them you couldn't get rid of them and or they went from being like yeah this is really great money to you immediately regretting taking that person on because you knew they were going to be the pain in your ass that you do not deserve so and that type of person when they're unhappy or like vindictive or not excited about your service anymore or think you're not providing what you said you were going to provide tend to be the ones who leave you the worst reviews who don't want to pay you and who can also, when you're done with them, even if you end things on good terms, sometimes will, you know, send you a nasty gram in the mail. So in those respects, I would say limiting what's out there about you in some ways is good. You have to decide what's right for you and your family and business, because whether you like it or not, your business and family are both connected. You, the way that your family is connected to you and the way you feel about that and the way that they're influenced by what you do. Like if you're very present on social media, or you're very present online or you go to a lot of conferences and a lot of people know you, um, everything you do in your personal life gets reflected in your business. So it's about balancing the safety of both yourself, your family, your business, and your own privacy and your right to have not everyone know everything about you. you don't, so it's it's a very personal decision. And I preface all of these things by saying it depends. And I hate that answer, but it's very true because I don't know your particular situation or context or what feels right for you or what you're comfortable with. But, you know, my name is out there. My All my social media link, uh, links are there. If you go looking, you'll find things. And my favorite thing is when people find me, I'm like, oh, my God, you have like this kind of page. And I'm like, yes, I do. Thank you for sending me to my own social media. I appreciate you. <laughs> like, you, there's no there there. We already know who I am. So um, for purposes of our business, it's our marketing. We're the face of the brand. So um, what I would suggest is, a data removal for some of your like personal information, like your um, home address. If you're using your home address, like you have a home office, um, you know, maybe getting a PO box or a virtual PO box so that you have all your business and mail go to that address so that if the address is bought up by a data creation service, that that's the address that's reflected in internet searches rather than your home address. So you could get a service like uh, Delete Me, which it will go through and delete, you know, your mobile number, like your personal mobile number and your address from databases. So every time they sell your database, um, like your database information to another company, um, Delete Me will go through and just you pay for like a year and they'll go through and just delete you out of a bunch of those databases. That can help minimize some of the like private stuff. I don't think you want anyone showing up at your house. I feel like that's a bridge too far. So um, does that help a little bit? Yeah, it does. Um, okay. You know, my, my work is at my house. So something else too, where, you know, you can have conversations with, you know, close friends and, and family members too about this and just, you know, let them know like, this is, you know, my sort of risk model that I'm dealing with. Like these, these are the things that I'm, I'm concerned about with my life and my business and separation 
how you can help me with this is not posting pictures of me online, not tagging me on Facebook. Like, you know, maybe, maybe they're welcome to post pictures if they were a vacation with you, but just don't tag me in them. And just those types of things, like you may be able to get, you know, kids and aunts and uncles and cousins and whoever to, to kind of do those things to help you. Um, and I, I like the idea of using a different address. Uh, I've got a family member who's retired law enforcement, uh, retired police chief, for instance, and who on uh, his driver's license and, and a lot of other things like had the department's address on it so that people couldn't somehow find him and find home addresses. Like he's had to be very, very careful over a long period of time of what information uh, to put out there because of that that career path, not even using his, his name, but because, you know, his name is on the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the badge, uh, you know, nameplate and in law enforcement, like they piss people off for a living. Um, yeah, you know, practically it's, uh, oversimplification, uh, of course, but like a lot of people aren't happy with their interactions because yeah, it's just the way it goes. And so I think, uh, that was that was one of the things that that he was always very clear with family about is please don't post my picture please don't tag this if somebody did you know please you know pull it down or crop it different so that I'm not in it or whatever um, and that that helped I think quite a bit and so that's something you may be able to do as well to help limit what gets out there so that you've got more control and can be very mindful about what you put out there specifically about you and your business and you can curate what's being published. Um, Yes, because we were we were talking earlier in the show about how once things are out there, they're out there, and they're very very difficult, if not impossible, to pull back. Um, so for a for an uninitiated newbie in this subject, is there something or some things that you think a person who doesn't know a whole lot of anything here should? Hey, go take a look at this, or hey, here's something to potentially be aware of stop doing um okay so specifically for your business or specifically for like a personal safety perspective just so that i can be clear yeah how about for business okay so from a business perspective you know we were talking about reputation management so you're going to want to go through your social media accounts and make sure that your business profile is separated from your personal profile so that you have your business accounts, whether it's your bank accounts or your addresses or your social media or your LinkedIn or whatever, that you have those completely separate because you don't want to cross contaminate the two, right? You want to have your business wholly separate from your personal stuff. So um, from a liability perspective as well, I don't know if you're carrying liability insurance, but um, or you run an LLC or an S Corp. I don't know what your structure is or in your state, but it's a little bit different in every state. But make sure that you're carrying... Um, looking at a liability policy professional or general liability to make ensure that if somebody comes after your business, they're not going to be suing your personal assets. They'll be coming after your business assets instead. That's a layer of protection we don't think about as insurance. But um, also cyber risk insurance may be something to consider. Um, because if you handle any sort of highly sensitive personal information of clients, uh, you are responsible for the processing of that information. You're responsible for the storage of that client information, and you're expected to operate under certain legal guidelines for how you protect it. So um, I, I won't get into all the details of it, but I'm sure you have a business lawyer advising you on your documents and your and whatever, whatever process you went through to set up your business. You have somebody advising you of the basic structure and what, what you have to abide by. 
Um, so yeah, from uh, like security hygiene, make sure you're using good, strong passwords. I know that sounds stupid, but it's true. If you can use a password manager, that's even better. Um, if you have multi-factor authentication on your accounts, like your social media accounts, uh, using a security app or using SMS if you can, whatever you've got available, anything's better than nothing. You don't want to be the low-hanging fruit for somebody coming after you, like a hacker, somebody like me. Um, personally, identifiable information that you put on your socials. So like limit what you share. Um, double check your privacy settings on your social media accounts or what you're posting on LinkedIn. Um, these are all things to protect your business and to protect your identity a little bit. Uh, these are just small things that you can do. You don't have to do them all at once. If you do one of them a month, you're doing better than most people. Um, even security people are very bad about doing these things. Um, I am terrible at changing my passwords, but I work very hard to make sure that I have multi-factor authentication, that um, I have all of my stuff separate, that um, I limit what I put out there. There's enough out there, but not too much. Um, let, what else? Um, do you have like specific questions about what you should and shouldn't post, or are you more like just general security practices? I think those were those were great issues. You know, I'm I'm very much at the state of you don't know what you don't know. And I think your your password example is a great one, right? Like you should have a strong password. Well, of course I should. So it's yeah, it's it's good to have those reminders. Um, I was making a note for myself for cybersecurity insurance. You know, I I have ENO coverage. I have liability coverage. Um, you would be amazed how many people don't. Uh, yeah, it it makes my skin crawl. It upsets me physically because I'm like, I'm thinking, what if they come after your babies? What if they come after your kids or your wife and her business, if she has one or a career or whatever? Like, what if they come after your assets? What if somebody sues me? That's my worry. So these are the things that keep me awake at night. Not that somebody's going to come to my house. No, no. It's that somebody's going to take my money that I've earned, right? So the other thing I was thinking about is, uh, sorry, my, just one more thing from work oh, before I forget. Um, if you have any sort of contracts, NDAs, uh, documents that you sign, use um, encryption. Use encryption on transfer of your documents. Don't send them over open email. Like use something like DocuSign or there's a bunch of other like um, you can use encrypted document signatures. Like that way everything is end-to-end -end encrypted. You can both sign the contract or whatever because we're all sending contracts and we're all doing NDAs and we're all doing consultation agreements and scopes of work. Just make sure whatever sort of system you use to store the documents is encrypted and however you send the documents is encrypted. We could do a whole episode on that, but that's something like that's something like, oh, I'll just send this contract. No, no, that contract has your name and your address and like your bank account information. Don't do that. <laughs> and and cyber insurance too. Like we could almost do a whole episode just on cyber insurance and and what people are 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 seeing with getting that because and cyber insurance often will have brand damage, you know. Uh, reputation recovery kind of coverage as part of it because that becomes a big piece of you know the restoration process and putting things back together afterwards uh, so as you as you go in and are looking at uh, insurance uh, do consider uh, you know cyber insurance like as a, a small shop it may not be terribly expensive for larger companies it is starting to get expensive and the, the insurance companies are starting to scrutinize a lot more than they used to but for uh, you know a small shop a one two man you know maybe three person shop or whatever like it, it i think is still attainable and can help with uh some of this stuff and we talk a little bit about 
uh, training, I think too, if you've got other folks that you work with, making sure that you've trained your other employees or contractors as well on this stuff for just what kinds of things to and not to put on social media, you know, because if they're tied to the company in some way, like they're always representing the company in some form or another. So incorporating some of that stuff into your, you know, awareness training or in just into your policy, a social media policy. And it doesn't have to be a legalese complex thing, but just, you know, these types of things are okay to say these types of things are, and just kind of give folks guidance on what they should and shouldn't post uh, online. And, you know, one thing that is really common and I cringe every time I see it, it happens a lot on LinkedIn, people get a new job and they, they post a picture on their first day and their, their employee badge is like either they're holding it up to the camera or it's like visible around their neck on a lanyard for somebody to look at and get all sorts of information off of. And now it's again, open source information that's out there publicly on social media. So just thinking about little things like that, that you can kind of train and provide guidance to the team for what to post and what not to post can can significantly reduce the amount of stuff that's being sprayed onto the internet inadvertently that you don't even really know about. Is that helpful, Mark? Do you have any other follow-up questions? It is, yeah, thank you. Um, I think that kind of covers my level of questions. Excellent. Yeah, glad we could help. I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and asking, your, asking your questions because they were fantastic uh, discussion around them. And I think it's going to be very, very valuable for our listeners. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. So, you know, Shannon, we had a, a couple folks come on and ask uh, questions for us. And like I said, really good discussion. Um, any sort of key takeaways that you want to make sure that our listeners sort of uh, walk away from this with, or, or anything you want to reiterate? Um, from the, the callers or the, the prior conversation? Like we're, we're talking about small businesses. So we're talking about end users. And we always want to think of the people who are not working in technology, who don't understand IT like we do, and make it easy. Make it as easy as we can. Even though security is complicated, even though it is hard, we have to make it easier and more accessible. So when I reminded you know Mark about passwords, like that's such a basic thing that even we as IT professionals forget to change our passwords. We forget to use a password manager. We forget to put multi-factor authentication. We forget to use encryption. We um, don't use our privacy settings the way we could on our social media. Like just small things mean that you're not the low-hanging fruit. You're not the person that it's going to be a little bit harder to get to you and it's going to be less of an effort like that they're going to go after you so like if you can make it five percent harder for hackers not the good ones the bad ones uh, the the criminals who want to steal your information if you can make it just even five to ten percent harder they're going to give up a lot quicker so um the the one other thing i was thinking of when we were talking to the callers was though we talk about um social media, but we don't talk about phishing as much, like phishing scams coming through text messages and emails, which are so, so common. And even um, even good people like you and me, we've been tricked by phishing emails. You know, even people that are aware of what's coming, um, you know, we'll click on a link and all of a sudden we'll put in our information. We'll be like, oh, no, I just and then we have to change. We're scrambling to call our bank and change our passwords and log out of our accounts and make sure our bank hasn't been hit and that we didn't give out a credit card number to the wrong person. And so even even though we are very educated in these matters, we still get caught too. 
it happens to really smart people, really educated people. It can happen to anyone. So these are the risks to small businesses. These these very common phishing scams, these very common text message phishing scams that happen with like tracking numbers, like there's parcel code tracking numbers that you get in your text message thinking it's a package from UPS and Amazon and it's not. They look real. So um, I guess I would say don't beat yourself up if it happens to you because it's happened to every single one of us. And it will. it's not a matter of like, if it will happen, it's a matter of when it will happen. So just having a little bit more knowledge, like Mark said, you don't know what you don't know. So knowledge is power. And the more you know, the more you can prepare, or at least when the worst thing does happen, you'll be ready or you'll have a plan. And that's the best way that I operate is like, that's how I teach people safety is like, okay, so the bad thing's going to happen and we can't stop the bad thing from happening. But instead of making it worst case scenario, we plan for best, middle and worst case, and it's going to be somewhere in the middle. And it's, it's interesting to me, like things keep boiling down to the same themes in security about like just being mindful and being vigilant, training and training and training <laughs> and people and people and people. Uh, Making training accessible, but also interesting and also worth your time. It's hard. It's hard to make people care about this. It's so hard. If I could make people care as much as I care, my job would be so much easier and so would yours. Exactly. So uh, as we're as we're wrapping up here, where can folks find you online if they want to, you know, look up what you're doing or or reach out or, you know, anything like that? Um, well, I'm everywhere and nowhere all at once. Uh, you can find me on, um, I'm still on Twitter, the, the dying site. I'm trying to get away from there. I'm also on Blue Sky. I'm on, lock, um, I'm locked down your life on all platforms. Um, so easy to find. I'm on TikTok. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on, you can go to my website, lockdownyourlife.com. That has all my links. And I'm usually pretty active on social media because I find that that's how people find me. So that's the best way to connect with me. I don't usually hand out my email address otherwise. And your website, Lockdown Your Life. Yes, lockdownyourlife.com. Yep. Mm -hmm. I'll put the link in the, the show description. That's probably the, like if somebody's dealing with harassment and that kind of stuff and like needs to contact you for help, that's the best place to go. That's probably the main place to go. Yep. There's a contact form on the site. Um, I do not give out my phone number. I found um, bad things happen when you do that. So do not recommend. Uh <laughs> As a business, do not recommend. Well, I want to thank you again for joining me on the show today, Shannon. It has been amazing having you here. I really hope our listeners found the discussion valuable uh, and will share that with their friends and family too, because this is just such an important topic that just, we need to get the information out there. Um, and as always, I want to give a huge thank you to you, our listeners. You make all the work we put in to do the show worth it. And I appreciate that you're listening right now today. So I am Accidental CISO. And until next time, stay mindful. Don't miss our next episode. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Visit Fosivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast for show information and links to our social media pages. This has been the Mindful Business Security Show brought to you by Fosivity. Tune in next time when we'll hear accidental CISO say, I hate the term best practices because uh, best practices is like one of those hand wavy things that people that don't know what they're doing <laughs> tend to say. But 
in a lot of ways, they kind of come down to like, this is really how you should be doing things. 